Amen. Let's give a round of applause for Kyle, all that she does, investing in our kids. It's an amazing job, an amazing team. Thank you to all of you who serve with uh, discipling and reaching the next generation. That's a really, really big deal. So you're going to want a Bible this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, where we've been the last uh, several weeks looking at the life of Jesus and uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, I uh, invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you need a Bible, um, go on and, uh, and we'll have some people walk around to pass out Bibles. You can just slip up a hand and they'll get a Bible to you so that you can follow along with us. And as you find your way there in Mark chapter 5. We began this journey uh, in the gospel of Mark, the good news of Mark is literally what the word gospel means, to, to hopefully to discover Jesus in a fresh way, that our hearts would, uh, would be open to him in a new way, that maybe we just fall in love with Jesus all over again. Because what we find in Jesus is the kingdom of God at hand. What does it look like when God shows up? What does it look like when God makes himself available to his people? And we've said every week that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know how God speaks to people, we look at how Jesus spoke to people. If we want to know how God treats people, we look at how Jesus treated people. And so our journey has been one of discovery, of looking to see what does it look like when the God of this universe shows up in the mess and the brokenness of this world and our lives. W.H. Vanstone, in his book, The Stature of Waiting, wrote, As he, being Jesus, moves about, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. Fishermen no longer at their nets, sick people restored to health, critics confounded, a storm stilled, hunger assuaged, a dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active and instantly transforming presence. He is never the mere observer of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. Even with that, this morning as you got ready for church and, and, and walked through these doors and we sang I mean, some beautiful lyrics and uh, opening our hearts, is your heart in a place of expectation that the God of this universe and the person of Jesus wants to show up in your life, not just simply as an observer of your life or standing by as a bystander, but an active participant who wants to meet you right where you are, who wants to walk with you right where, wherever you find yourself? What does it look like when the God of this universe wants to show up for you, even right now this morning? Is that in this, the space that your heart is in? We're going to look at a couple stories this morning. And really asking this question, what does it look like when God shows up in our pain? So I'm going to start in Mark 5, 21. And then we will uh, kind of teach a little bit out of it, and we'll continue on in the story. Remember, Jesus has uh, just done these two incredible miracles uh, of speaking peace into chaos, 
first, he's crossing over the lake and that storm hits. The disciples, fearing for their lives, cry out, do you not care? We're going to drown. And Jesus, with a word, calms that storm. Only for them to land and be face to face with another storm, an internal raging storm of the demoniac, besieged by a legion of spiritual forces threatening to tear his life apart. In fact, he has torn his own life apart. Separated from his community, chains couldn't even bind him any longer, raging within and without. And again, with a word, Jesus sets him free. And it is in, that, in those two raging scenes of God bringing peace into chaos that we now see Jesus get back into the boat and cross back across the lake. And it says this, that, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This is nothing new for Jesus. It seemed like wherever he went, great crowds showed up, some just curious, some, uh, some angered and, and critical, and then some genuinely uh, um, engaged, wanting to, to uh, be a part of what he was doing. So this crowd gathers about him. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. So here we have this dad, and if you are a dad, uh, you may have ever experienced, I, I pray not, that, that feeling, though, of, of watching your child suffer. I remember when um, Jolie was three, she, uh, uh, our second daughter, she had this fever for a little while, this high fever that just wouldn't break. And after a couple of days, and we kept in touch with our doctor, they told us eventually we needed to go down to, to Choa and, uh, and Eggleston and, and have her seen. And, uh, and they could not figure out what was going on in her little body, and day after day passed. And, and I just remember standing in the window of her hospital room without even words. I mean, just like so desperate uh, and feeling so helpless, like so powerless in that place. That there's nothing that I could do for my daughter. And, uh, and uh, the church surrounded us in prayer and, and loved on her. They had all kinds of different specialists coming in. Finally, uh, an uh, infectious disease doctor uh, recognized what she had, this really random uh, illness called Kawasaki's disease. I'd never even heard of it before. Um, I thought that was just a motorcycle. I didn't realize it was also an illness. And, uh, and apparently, though, she was a one of a kind, uh, apparently, not one of a kind, I mean, but very rare. We always knew that about Jolie. She's always been a, a special, rare, one of a kind daughter. And, uh, but apparently, uh, Kawasaki's most often shows up in Asian boys, but here it was with my Caucasian daughter. And, uh, but they found it, and the significant thing was, and our answer prayer was that um, there's kind of a 10-day window in that if, as long as it's uh, diagnosed and dealt with within 10 days, then there's no long-term impact. And it was actually on day 10 that uh, they diagnosed her with what it was and treated her. And uh, it was amazing watching that treatment and just how quickly she transformed. And in that space, like in that, I mean, going from that morning in desperation, not knowing what was happening, and then standing beside her bed, watching my little daughter wake up, watching color come back into her body as the treatment began to work its way through her. 
And so I just identify with this story so deeply, this desperation of a father. And this is a father who's well known in the community. I mean, it says his name. He, he was the ruler of the synagogue, meaning he was the leader of that religious uh, space. And in that time, the, the religious space was also the social space. The two were completely intertwined. And so he would have been well known in the community. He, he would have been affluent. And, but he got to a place where he knew his riches, his connections, even what felt like his prayers to God weren't working. And so he turns to Jesus. In fact, undignified for a man of his uh, stature, he falls on his face and begs Jesus, will you come see my little girl? Now we know his little girl is actually 12 years old. 12 being a significant year in a Jewish girl's life. It was the year from 12 to 13 that Jewish boys and girls were seen as moving from childhood to adulthood. So here's his little daughter on the verge of beginning her life, the world in front of her. And yet, his options had run out. And so Jesus, it says, goes. But all of a sudden, the story gets interrupted. This isn't the first time Mark does this. In fact, it's called Sandwiching Stories. And uh, it's, it's a feature of Mark where he will begin a story, then he'll insert a story, and then he'll finish the story. And what he's doing is he's drawing parallels. As you study the gospel on your own, and as I encourage you every week, it's way more important what God is saying to you as you study his word than anything that I could say to you from here. But uh, is that uh, look for those sandwiches. And ask, why? Why did Jesus, I mean, why Yeah, Jesus or the Spirit in his wisdom choose uh, to allow Mark to put these together the way that he did? But here we have an interruption. We've got the sandwich uh, in this story of Jairus and his daughter. So let's keep going. And we will push pause on this desperate father and meet a desperate woman. And a great crowd throng, uh, followed him and thronged about him. That word means like jostled. If you've ever been like uh, at a concert trying to get to the front of the stage, you know, that jostling feeling where everyone's just knocking into one another. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under, under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she thought, said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So let's pause here in her story. Because all of a sudden you have a second woman. The first one, this daughter of privilege, 12 years old, life in front of her. A father of prestige and means, surrounded by friends and family and people who are caring for her. But still, her only option at the end is that Jesus would show up. And then all of a sudden, we get introduced to this other woman completely opposite of this first girl. This is a woman who, after 12 years, not beginning life, she's looking at the end of her life. She's run out. For 12 years, she's had this illness, this bleeding in her that has not been able to be solved. And in fact, it says, it's actually a painful statement, that even her healers actually ended up causing her more pain. She suffered at the hands. In other words, she was, she was in pain because of those who were supposed to heal her. 
She was taken advantage of. She had nothing left. She wasn't wealthy. She didn't have connections. In fact, she was now in poverty. She had, she had no, not a penny left to her name. She had completely run out of options. And her alone and desperate and scared and struggling, hopeless and helpless, had heard about Jesus. And her thought, though, was there's no way that he could do anything. He would do anything for me. But, but, if he is that powerful, if he's really done the things that, that they say he has done, if the way that he teaches actually is, is true, if I could just touch him, maybe I could be healed. And so she makes her way through that chaotic crowd and and it doesn't even come up to the, to the front but from behind so he won't see her this story actually also is deeply personal for me um separate from the other story it's actually interesting as i was preparing for this teaching and and diving into this i had for me this is the first time i'd seen the sandwich <laughs> I knew these two stories apart from one another, but I hadn't seen these two stories intertwined with each other, which makes it even that much more beautiful and rich. But for me, this story where it hits me is that I, uh, um, when I was in college, my mom uh, went through cancer, and uh, in that space, I just really struggled. I mean, I just kind of, uh, I sort of derailed, and, and I would look back on it and say uh, it was a little depressed, and ended up just really questioning a lot of things, questioning my faith, kind of walking away from God for a moment, and uh, ended up making a lot of just really dumb decisions and, uh, and kind of ending up in a space that I uh, never really would thought I would have gone. And uh, that was kind of the first semester coming back, Christmas break. And then I, I came back to school um, in January and just hated myself. I hated the things I'd done. I hated... Uh, how lost I felt and, uh, and, and scared I felt and, and just desperate. And the feeling, though, was there's just like this shame, like there's no way. Like I knew I'd been walking with Jesus since eighth grade. I'd worked at summer camps. I had spoken at events. I mean, I was leading a campus ministry, and, and I was like, there's, there's no way God would even want to look at me. And the feeling, I remember as clear as day, the feeling was I wish I could have a quiet time and God not know I was there. In other words, I wish I could just sneak up behind him and just touch the edge of his cloak because I don't want to see his face when he turns around and looks at me. And I remember I just fell on my face in my dorm room and just cried out, God. Because I knew, I was like, there's no way. You can't hide from God. God, if, if you'll have me. It was beautiful in that moment. For me, the way God showed up is my phone rang. <laughs> And it was actually Greg Boone who had led me to the Lord when I was in seventh grade that was calling. And he's like, man, I, he's like, I know this is random, but uh, I just can't get you out of my head. He's like, I want to I see you. I want you to come work. He worked at a summer camp, a Christian camp. I want you to come work for me this summer. And I was like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. And he's like, God keeps putting you on my mind. Just come see me. It was almost like in that moment, God was like, I see you. I don't think that phone call was about Greg or the summer camp. I think it was about Jesus turning and looking me in the face. You know, there's a powerful thing that happens in our brains. I, I'm fascinated now by this thing. Uh, it's called neurotheology. 
And what it is is this study of recognizing these ancient practices and ancient scriptures that are actually being revealed to be true, surprise, in what we're discovering about the way our brain works, the way that God made our bodies. Actually, if you're interested tonight, there's a lady, uh, um, Barbara Moon, and I, completely unrelated, another lady in the church uh, asked if she could have the speaker come, do a coffee and connection thing at 3 o'clock here on uh, this Sunday, and, and I was like, so I was like, ah, I should probably check out this lady before I just let some rando show up and teach at our church, and so I'm Googling who she is, and and the more that I'm reading about her, the more I like, she was like mentored by all of these people that I'm reading right now, and I was like, absolutely she can come, and so if you're interested in that, she's speaking at three on boundaries, uh, um, and uh, I think in the coffee shop here, but that's besides the point. The point is, what it's showing is that, that our brains are hardwired to respond to faces, and not just to any face, even from the youngest age all the way up through, and, and the, the word they use for this is joy. Does that sound like a biblical word? That joy is the feeling when you see somebody's face light up when they see you. Do you know that feeling? Just think, what was the last time that somebody's face lit up? when they saw you? A child, a spouse, a sibling, a family member. Uh-oh. <laughs> They're probably, is it somebody else that's preaching better than me? <laughs> oh, it's the Bible app. Oh, well, we should, well God wants to know. Um, <laughs> no worries. Uh, no, just pause. Just think about it. I mean, just, just look back. I actually asked our staff this a couple weeks ago during one of our staff times, and we just kind of paused and reflected. Like, what was the last time that, that you saw somebody's face light up when you walked in the room? And what did that do in your soul? Do you have a hard time believing that God's face lights up? When you walk in the room, I mean, what would that do for your tomorrow, your walk with him? In fact, let's ask a different way. Let's imagine that, that Jesus was sitting back in the prayer room waiting for you. If you're really honest, when you come around the corner and you walk in that door, what would your expectation be of his face when he sees you? You think about the prodigal son who had made a bunch of really awful decisions. Dishonored, embarrassed took advantage of, exploited his father, and yet what does it say that when his head pops up on the horizon, the father runs and embraces his son. His face lights up when he sees even this prodigal. Now that doesn't mean they probably needed to have some hard conversations later. But his face lit up. There's an ancient prayer, actually one of the, the oldest blessings in the Scriptures the priestly blessing, you know what it is? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May the Lord turn his face towards you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. What if the God of this universe, his face lights up when you walk in the room? And what I love about this story, and there's so much, God wasn't going to let her stay anonymous. He wasn't going to let her just hide on the fringes. But what does Jesus do? For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, a classic commentator question, did he really not know? I'll let you decide. And his disciples said to him, I think this is hilarious, uh, you see the crowd pressing on you, and yet you say, who touched me? In other words, uh, like a thousand people, Jesus, are knocking into you. But Jesus isn't talking about the crowd. He's talking about the woman with intent, intent reached out for him. And he looked around to see who had done it. And we say this all the time because it's so important that you get this in your souls, that God sees you. God sees you. Yes, the mess, and yes, the brokenness, and yes, the mistakes, and yes, the failures. But he sees you, all of you. The son and the daughter underneath all that mud and muck. The one struggling and striving, the one trying so hard, and he's saying, just come, just come. Looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, I think even that is a healing word, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And be healed of your disease. The anonymous woman becomes a beloved daughter in the face of God. The one broken and hopeless with nothing to offer becomes one that is wanted and seen and known in the eyes of Jesus. I love that Mark includes this phrase that, that she told him the whole truth. She told him the whole story. And see, the path to healing is honesty. And at some point, we have to own our junk. We have to own our pain. We have to own our failures. I mean, even Jairus at some point had to come to a place of owning his helplessness of getting over his pride and his dignity and falling on his face before Jesus and being honest that he had nothing to offer. 
And this woman telling the whole story, and this is significant for her because it's actually for her a very shameful story. The illness that she was suffering from was one that would have been uh, explicitly uh, declared as, I mean, would have been one that explicitly declared her unclean, cast aside, rejected, banished. In fact, displeased by God would have been the religious understanding of it. But she told him, this is where I've been. This is my story. This is what I've tried and it hasn't worked. And here I am 12 years later and all my only hope is you, Jesus. And I had heard about you and I love this. She heard and she acted. She wasn't just one that heard about Jesus. She actually did something with it. That should be a call to all of us. But that she heard, I heard what you've done and so I came. And I only thought if I could just if I could just barely even touch you, that you're so powerful, maybe you could heal me. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to like, get your attention. I didn't mean to take your time. And Jesus turns, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word for that Greek word. Shalom, wholeness. Shalom isn't the, simply like the absence of conflict as a circumstance. Shalom, peace, is a state of being, of wellness, of wholeness, regardless of circumstance. And he restored her to health. But he didn't just restore her to health. At Grace Monroe, our, our, we say our mission is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. Pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. And we see in this intimate moment between Jesus and this woman that he restores her health, yes, but he also restores her soul. And he also restores her to community. You're not alone. Can you imagine the men and women and the disciples that right now all they can see is the chaos and the crowd and they probably have their agenda in mind. They're following the wealthy guy and they're like, man, this is a good connection to have. The leader of the synagogue and I love that Jesus is willing to stop. He's not rushed. He's not in a hurry. He doesn't prioritize based on status in society. And all of a sudden, this woman is seen. She's one of them. And so we come back. To the other side of the sandwich. Back to Jairus' story. Back to his beloved daughter. Immediately after Jesus heals his beloved daughter. And while he was still speaking, Jesus that is. So even as Jesus is talking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Hey, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, and actually uh, some of the older manuscripts, actually, it's, uh, they translate that word differently uh, based on the context. They say, ignoring what they said. But whether he's speaking over it or he's just simply discounting it, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, he says to, to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And that, the, the verb tense for that word believe right there is keep on believing. It's an ongoing action. Don't be afraid. 
Keep believing. Because right here, if we just pause in the story, Jairus has a choice. Is he going to keep trusting Jesus? Is he going to keep walking with Jesus? When Jesus makes him wait, when Jesus interrupts his story and his agenda, is he going to keep trusting Jesus? When Jesus goes on a detour to deal with some insignificant woman from his perspective, is he going to keep trusting Jesus? And when the news gets worse, is he going to keep trusting Jesus? Is he going to keep walking with Jesus? When it seems like all hope is lost, is he going to keep trusting Jesus? And I love that Jesus doesn't call him by name. He actually calls him by a title. It's almost like he's, it's like a place marker. He's just holding it there. Where are you going to be? Are you with me? Are you going to let me define who you are? Are you going to let me speak your name? Are you going to let me into your life? Or are you going to take this and handle it on your own? Ruler of the synagogue. But what do we see Jairus do? And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Jairus keeps walking with Jesus to his house. Have you ever invited Jesus into your home? I don't just mean literally your house, so maybe. But to the mess of your heart, to the chaos and craziness of your life, have you ever invited Jesus into your house? And what does Jesus do when he shows up? Well, he takes a handful of the, that kind of uh, fa- the sort of inner circle of, of disciples. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. Just to explain that, that was sort of a, I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, this is a, a 12-year-old daughter uh, that has just died of an illness, and um, I, mean, I do believe there's genuine grief in that space. But there's also a social thing that was happening, a cultural thing that was happening, and that is that you were commanded to hire professional mourners. Uh, especially if you had means. But even if you didn't have means, it was expected that you'd have at least one whaler, somebody that would stand outside the house, and it was sort of like um, making a notice in the newspaper, so to speak, of what had happened there. But so there's professional mourners that it seems like are part of this scene. I do believe there's also probably other people that are genuinely grieving the loss of this little girl. People weeping, wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. It's an interesting word choice that Jesus uses. It's actually a word choice that the, the early church and the New Testament writers hold on to, this idea of being asleep, this temporary nature of death, that death is not the end of the story. And they laughed at him. That word in the Greek there for laughed is actually the word mocked. It's not like they were just like overcome with hilarious laughter. It's a, it's a scoffing a mocking sound. And they mocked him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So what does Jesus do when he enters Jairus' house? Well, he kicks out the scoffers. He only brings in those with faith that are walking with him. 
And we ask the same question thinking about our house, whether that's our life, our heart, our home, our community. Who are you listening to? Who are the people that you're giving access to the innermost places in your life, to the most intimate, vulnerable spaces, especially, especially when you're in pain, when you're vulnerable? Who are you letting in? Who are you listening to? I told you that a few weeks ago we asked, we talked to the staff about imagining. We actually walked through an exercise imagining Jesus being in the room and walking in. What would his face look like? And, and asked that same question. It was the last time that you saw uh, somebody's face light up. And I, and I said, um, you know, a, a lot of people thought about their little children. Some of them have young kids. And you watch a young kid when their mom walks in the room and just how excited they get. And, uh, and somebody made a joke about their husband. Like, I wish joke. I mean, they're kind of just being silly. But it, I had the thought. I was thinking, I was like, I wonder how many marriages actually feel that way. Like, there was a time that your face lit up when I walked in the room. There was a time that, I mean, you were excited to see me. We would not have stuck together if that was not true. It's amazing how the narrative shifts, especially when I'm dealing with couples that are struggling in their marriage or failing, uh, that they, um, <laughs> they'll tell their story from this perspective of, I, don't, I never loved him. I knew from the beginning this wouldn't work. I, I've actually had some of my closest friends tell me that. Oh, you know, I, I never loved him. I was like, yeah, you did. I was there. Like, I, I watched your face when she walked down the aisle. I saw you trying to describe to me how she was more amazing than anyone. I had one friend, I remember a specific conversation. Sadie and I had just uh, um, gotten married. We'd gone through premarital counseling, and they were giving us some, uh, some tools about how to deal with conflict. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I can imagine it's going to be uh, difficult. And, and I remember looking at me going, I don't think for us. I was like, What? He's like, I don't, I, I don't think that we're going to fight. I was like, you're a moron. <laughs> now, I say that, and, and this part's not, not funny, uh, that, that, that marriage actually ended up failing. But part of the narrative of that story that was told to me later was, yeah, we never loved each other. But catch yourself. We're amazing as humans at rewriting stories. We're amazing at humans at rationalizing our sin, our fear, our failure, our pain. And so the question becomes, who are you letting into your house? So Jesus kicks out the mockers. He kicks out the, the scoffers, the ones that are convinced this story is over, that it's hopeless, that it, they've reached the end, that there's nothing that can be done. And he walks in with a mom and a dad probably scared out of their minds but still clinging in faith to hope that maybe God can show up. And what does Jesus do? I love this. He reaches out and he, and he takes the girl by the hand. It's this tender, intimate moment. And he says, little girl, get up. Actually, then the mark records it in the Aramaic. It's the only place that he does this. Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. 
commentators have always understood that as, uh, as evidence of the eyewitness account, or eyewitness nature of this event. Mark being understood to have been a disciple of Peter, so he would have heard Peter's stories. Peter there in the room, Peter watching for the first time in his life somebody be literally raised from the dead. You think that he would remember exactly what was said, don't you? And so what gets recorded? The Aramaic, the literal words of what Jesus said. Talitha kum, little girl, get up. I remember uh, when Buddy, my mentor, passed away. He, uh, or sorry, not when he passed away, um, before that, a couple years earlier, he'd had his first major um, issue with an aneurysm and, uh, and basically was given sort of a 99% chance that he, he was not going to make it. And, um, and if he did, the question really was, if he does wake up, you know, they did this, uh, this emergency surgery, and he was in ICU, and they said if he does wake up, when he wakes up, and it's probably going to be a few weeks from now, but, but if he wakes up, when he wakes up, uh, we don't know brain function. We don't know how much damage has been done. We don't know if you'll ever see the buddy that you knew before. Um, and so a few hours after surgery, we had the chance. Uh, it was only allowed to be like immediate family. But his wife, Jody, came out, and, um, and there's a couple of uh, his mentees, the young guys that he had mentored that were in the waiting room there. And she kind of snuck us into the back. And so we went back into ICU, and the nurse kind of looked the other way because you're supposed to have, like, one person back there. And so the four of us uh, with Jody uh, stood around his bed there with all the monitors and all the things hooked up to him. And, I mean, he looked dead. And, uh, and I remember I put my hand on his foot, and we just started praying. And uh, just, Jesus, we bring him to life. Will you do something? We need a miracle here. Jesus, will you show up? Will you do something? Please, Jesus, will you show up? Uh, will you heal him? Um, and, and I remember, it was just a, a few seconds into the prayer, into praying, I, I felt his foot twitch. And my first thought, and this is kind of a uh, morbid thought, is, you know how, like, there's, like, you know when you squash a bug and they keep twitching? I don't know a polite way to word that. And that was my thought. It was like, oh, this is just sort of that, you know, kind of, the professional term is the squash bug syndrome. And uh, I mean, that was my first thought. It was like, oh, it's twitching. And, uh, and then he started making noise, like, like groaning. He's like, uh, he's like trying to say something. And, and moving, starting to move around. And we, we turned to the nurses and we're like, is this normal? Like, is this what you expect? We didn't know. Like, is this normal? And, uh, and she came and she looked and, and looked at his vitals and him trying to talk and just flipped out. I, I really believe to this day that we watched a dead man come back to life. And it wasn't a few hours later that Buddy was up and talking. He would go on to plant three more grace churches. I will never forget that moment. So does it surprise me at all that Peter remembers exactly verbatim what Jesus said when he watched this little girl get up out of bed that had been proclaimed dead? Not at all. Because that's what happens when God shows up. Now, pay attention to the words there of sleeping. Because we recognize that we are not temporal beings. 
And I do also know, and I have wrestled all for weeks on this teaching, what happens when she doesn't get up? What happens if Buddy had died on that table? What happens if my daughter had not gotten healed? What happens for all the people you pray for and they stay sick? The funerals that I do for young people that should have never died. Even for older people, towards the end of their life, they're like, why not a few more years? Like, what happens? But we are not temporal beings. This life is not all that there is. And so when Jesus talks about sleeping, it's a language that he's speaking into, that this is a temporary place that we find ourselves in. This is not the end of the story. And death is not the end of the story. At some point, that little 12-year-old girl is going to die. There was a funeral for her at some point. At some point, the woman that was healed from bleeding passed away. She's not still here. But they didn't encounter Jesus, the one who holds eternal life in his hands. And death, as Christians, our Christian hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of our faith, the expectation of the reality of a God who is the beginning and the end of all things, is that death is a falling asleep. Death is a temporary stop, is a pause in God's eternal plan of redemption and salvation. We're eternally, outside of these broken bodies, outside of the shame and the fear and the guilt of these, of these dirty souls, where God will eternally look in our face. His face will shine upon us. His sons and daughters, completely whole, fully restored, fully healed. That is the never-ending end of the story. And so until then, it's the now but the not yet of the kingdom. We invite Jesus into our pain. And we keep walking with him when we don't know where the road's going to go. And even when the situation gets worse, we keep turning to him. We invite him into those intimate spaces and places in our house in the confusion, in the unknown, in the doubts, in the fears, in the pain. Jesus is available to us in our pain, in our fear, in our loss, in our hurt. And this raising to life of this little girl is simply pointing forward to a time when God would fully release us from that vice grip of death for all who are in Christ. And then lastly, and I want to make sure we get this, Jesus invites us to do the same for others. Jesus invites us to go with him into people's places of pain, to stand with them in the, the confusion. You know when people are hurting, it matters way less that you have the right words to say. What matters way more is that you showed up, that you were there. And those of you that have walked through tragedy, you know that. You remember that. 
You know what it's like, even in your pain, to see somebody's face light up when they see you. See, joy, face lighting up when they see you, is not connected to our circumstances. That's why we can experience joy even in the most horrendous circumstances. When the God of this universe shows up in our pain, when God's people show up in the midst of our pain, see people like Jesus did. To be with people, to not let people stay anonymous or hidden or on the fringes. That they have our face. They have our time. Jesus made this outrageous statement in his scriptures. That us imperfect, broken people, all struggling in our own junk, we now carry the title, the body of Christ? Do you get what that means? That we, as imperfect as we are, collectively, together, we are now the visible representation of Jesus Christ on earth. The same way Jesus was the visible representation of the invisible God. So it's now us who get to show up. And we won't do it perfectly. And that's why we need grace. That's why our church is called grace. We'll let each other down. We won't say the right things. In fact, sometimes we'll say some really stupid stuff to each other. I don't know all your stories. I know a lot of your stories. And I know you're all carrying something. And you're not meant to carry that alone. You're never meant to carry that alone. That's the point of the church. Not just for each other, but there's a whole lot of people in the homes and the houses around us and the nations that surround us that just as desperately need somebody that's willing to show up in their life, see them, Look in their face, their face to light up when they see them, to share and to show this incredible, amazing, never-ending love of God. I want to pray for us and then invite us into continue in response and worship. There's so much more I want to say. This is so huge. I encourage you, dive into these stories, these scriptures this week, and just invite, ask God, God, what do you want me to know? What are you speaking to me? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do in response? But I just want, for our time of worship and response, to invite you to a few things. One is to own your junk whatever that might be, pain, sin, failure, struggle, fear. And I encourage you, this is why this is like our body postures matter. Here, notice how many times in the scripture stories people fall on their face before Jesus. And I encourage you just to get on your knees, that posture of surrender, that posture of pleading. Jesus, let me just be honest. I don't have answers. I don't have explanations. I don't have justifications. 
I just need to be honest with you. This is where I am. This is where I'm stuck. This is where I'm alone. This is where I'm scared. This is where I'm hurting. This is where I failed. And then we stand up from that space. And the, the invitation of communion, and, and Paul is really clear not to, do, not to enter into communion uh, lightly without, uh, um, without, and not, not in reverence, not having searched our own hearts. But communion, that, that reminder of the presence of God with you. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he was saying is from this point forward, my presence with you is as real as this bread that you're holding in your hand. Will sustain you just as powerfully as this bread that you're taking into your body. And then this cup, this cup is my blood, Jesus said. Shed for the forgiveness of sins that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do, went to death with Jesus on the cross. It's not on your back. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we take that cup and it's that reminder, that symbol of receiving the forgiveness of God through the blood of Christ. And there's people that want to pray with you. Invite our prayer team around the room, our elders and leaders to just be there. If, if you want, even if you don't want we all need somebody just to pray for us. Pray with us. Stand with us in whatever we're dealing with. So I invite you to go on and stand. Lord Jesus, search our hearts. Know our minds. Will you touch us in those innermost places in our souls? Lord, would you bless us, keep us, hold us. Lord, may your face shine upon us and give us peace. Give us the courage to be honest with you, to receive whatever you have for us this morning. In the precious and the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.